Hello, this is Peter Noon, Herman from Herman's Hermits, and you're watching Live Minute TV, and I'm on it. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter. Peter Blair Dennis Bernard Noon, otherwise known as the dashingly handsome and charming Herman of the hugely popular 60s pop group Herman's Hermits, was born in England and started as a child actor. At the age of 15, he and his band reached international fame with one hit after the other. These days, the entertainer can still be seen wowing, screaming fans just as he did in the 60s, still acting here and there. You might also catch him on stage and screen. But we were fortunate to catch up with him virtually from his home in California to hear all about what he's been up to and more. This is a Life Minute with Herman's Hermits, Peter Noon. Hi, Peter. Thanks so much for visiting us. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Joanne. I'm having um, a bit of a comeback, I think, even though I haven't really been away. It seems like almost all the places we play nowadays are selling out again. And for a while there, we were, you know, we did the thing where we were real hermits for a bit. So did your concerts get postponed? Uh, we just rescheduled everything. We decided to let the promoters keep the money. The people who wanted the money back got it back, but the... Yeah. The concerts were all rescheduled, so now we're doing, now that it's like ping pong in a vacuum cleaner. Tennessee to LA to Tennessee to New York to Cleveland to San Diego. And, and luckily we're a flying band. We, you know, we don't truck, we fly everywhere, so it's all doable. What can fans expect to see when they see a Herman's Hermit show? An old geezer singing an old song. <laughs> I'm a fan of a lot of entertainers. And what I saw as I grew up, like if you went to see, say you went to see the Beatles, they would do all songs that you like. Before they, before they became famous, they would do all songs that were popular and fun. And uh, so I, de I decided that I would always play to the audience, which is always play to the audience. And I'll build a show around as if it's a show, not a concert. And I will do songs that people want to hear. I think it was Barry Gibb, you know, the, the guy, the lead singer was my friend from the Bee Gees. You know, we grew up together. Our moms and dads dated. My dad went out with Barbara, who, Barbara, who was Barry's mom. And my mom went out with Barry's dad before they, be, and, they and they met on a double date. Barry said to me, we were talking about, you know, the people that, we, that we'd grown up listening to. And, and I, I told him that Roy Orbison once said to me, you know, you're lucky, Peter, because you can go on stage and you can sing your own songs and be on for about 45 minutes. To, you know, the, in those days, 45 minutes was the magic number. You know that? Now it's uh. 90, 75 to 90 minutes. Everybody does. Once upon a time, there'd be six acts who all did three songs. Now it's one act who does 18 songs. So I chose my 18 songs like I do. I'm, I do all my hits, every one of them. We don't have a set list, but we do these songs. We, we don't have a list because it keeps the energy up if nobody knows what's next. And I never know what's next. I just feel it. But we do I'm in Something Good, Wonderful World. We do a song called Love Potion Number 9 because the audience sing it. And I want to set up that you're allowed to sing anytime you want to during my show. And then I do a Johnny Cash song because it's sort of not the right place or time to do a Johnny Cash song. But I like Johnny Cash. And then I do a Davy Jones, Daydream Believer. That all over Dave Clark Five, then I do Silhouettes, Herman's Hermits, Listen People, Herman's Hermits, and just a little bit better Herman's Hermits, and No Milk Today, Herman's Hermits, then The End of the World, and I'll Never Dance Again, and the ballads things. And, and then suddenly we're at the end, and I do a, a Mick Jagger parody, 
Oh, wow. Sonia Mahabi, Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter, Henry VIII, and there's a kind of hush, and say goodnight. No encore. The encore is the last song. And it's good fun for everybody. You know, it's good fun for everybody in the band as well. You know, we all have fun with each other and make fun of each other and laugh at each other's mistakes. And we think we like the Royal Marines. We, we kind of, we're there to pick up each other. If somebody falls down, you pick them up and take their place. And, you know, so if somebody breaks a string, another guitar player will take over. If somebody falls down you know we don't we don't have any booze or drugs problems so but if anybody mm -hmm. did have that they, we could just push them off the stage and take over their spot are you the only original member yeah everybody you know i speak to i speak to keith hopwood every day because he's just put out a new record he's a good guy he's a nice nice man i keep thinking of him as a boy you know and <laughs> and and we talk a lot because we we kind of reminisce like two old geezers we both first saw the Beatles in the same place, but we didn't know each other. Can you imagine? We lived within a mile of each other, all of us, but we never knew each other. We found each other through music, you know, like a, he was in a band and we needed him. We needed someone out of our band because we were, we were professional, even though we were only 14. The same day, a year later, we had a number one record in England. How did you guys meet? You know, he was in a band, I can't remember the name of the band, and we needed somebody, we had a guy called Alan Chadwick, who was a bricklayer, and he, he was one of those bricklayers who could carry the bricks up on a ladder, up onto the roof of a house, like, do you know what hard it's called? This is English traditional stuff. And he, he didn't want to travel, really, you know what I mean? He was one of those guys who was kind of comfortable being a working guy and getting up in the morning and going to work, and he didn't want to travel. He didn't want to take two days off that job to go and, and be adventurous, because it was an adventure being in the band, because you never knew if you were going to make it. You never knew if the audience would like you. You never knew what they were going to throw at you. And um, so he quit, and we needed a replacement for him. So we, we looked, and we heard this Keith Hopwood guy was a bit of a whiz kid. I, t I talked to him about it recently and he said he only joined because we had so many concerts booked already. We were always, whatever, whatever anybody says about Herman's Hermits, we were always the busiest band. We would take anything. We did bat mitzvahs even before they were even invented. Wow. You know, we would never stop working. We would, seven days a week, we would always find somewhere to work because, because we had to. And we'd seen the Beatles and, you, and we'd seen other bands and we realized that the difference was that they were much more persistent about playing. You know, it was, wasn't good to, it's completely gone now. You know, there's no bands rehearsing anywhere around me. But at the time there was a, like in every street in England, there were groups starting, you know, there's the old skiffle groups and jazz groups and, you know, my dad had a band and he played the trombone in, his, in a band and, and his brother was a trumpet player and there was there were just bands everywhere, but they were, they were what my dad called part-timers. You know, <laughs> you don't want to be a part-timer ever at anything. If, you, got, if you, you make a commitment and you go for it. Yeah. So I said, well, that's, my commitment isn't school. And uh, it's going to be, I'd, I'd like to be a, in, a, in a group, a beat group. Oh, yeah. And he, fine. My, my parents luckily were, gave me and my sister an amazing uh, dose of independence. You know, the, my mother and father were at university when we were children because the Second World War had messed up their whole 
education system. So my mother was at school in Cambridge and my father was at Edinburgh University. And my sister and I lived with my grandparents. And my grandparents had two houses. They had one little house in Manchester and they had another one on the other side of the other, on the, across the road from Liverpool in, in, in Wales. And my parents, they'd get us on a bike. We'd, we'd, we'd leave in June and my sister and I would cycle 60 miles to my grand, exactly 60 miles. We had a little thing on the wheel that showed you how far you'd gone. And when we got there, we'd be exhausted. You know, it was a long way, it was like five hours. And uh, maybe six hours sometimes because my sister was slow. And, you know, we were 10 and 12. And my parents didn't ever know that we got there until they received a, a postcard. You know, we would go the next day after we got there and mm-hmm. send them a postcard. You know, wish you, it's raining, wish you were here. You know, a joke postcard with a fat wife and a, a little skinny husband. You know, that big, this big. And, and, and they didn't know. And then in September, we'd cycle back and they would find out that we were still alive, basically. You know what I mean? There was no phones. It's just a weird yeah. world that we lived in. Mm-hmm. And then when my parents came back from university, I think I preferred being with my grandparents because they came back from university and we lived in a beautiful house and they were doing fabulously well. And I preferred my grandparents because they were deaf and they went to bed at nine o'clock every night and you could have a party. You could have disco doc party down in the room down below them and they would never hear it. And if you cleaned up, they wouldn't notice in the morning. We had this massive amount of freedom because it was everyone was safe we heard once you know we heard that there'd been a murder somewhere and we all went to have a look at the you know it was like it was a big deal that somebody had been murdered nobody got divorced you know our little neighborhood was all my grandmother was the the boss of the whole neighborhood my grandmother for some reason people were afraid of her (laughs) and um and it was a it was very safe and and because of that safety, all the government created a thing called youth clubs because nobody had anywhere to go between four o'clock and six o'clock when their parents came home. So they built these youth clubs and they, of course they had music and they had a DJ and they had and people would dance and, and, and Herman's Hermits, whatever we were called, ran into those places. You know, the cavern had a thing called the Junior Cavern, which was from four o'clock till six o'clock. And we play there as many times as they would let us. You know, we got four pounds or something. It wasn't enough to pay the petrol to go there and from our, but we still did it. You know, we had other jobs to pay for being in a band. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I sold, you know, this is a Manchester United t-shirt and I, I worked for Manchester United, I sold programs on the way in and newspapers on the way out of the game. And then when in anything that newspapers were left, we'd go to a pub near my grandmother's and we'd stand outside the pub and say, evening news, evening news, and s- until we got them on. We financed the whole band. I suddenly found myself at Manchester School of Music learning. You know, my, my dad thought I, if I wanted to be in the music business, I, I should learn about music. One day I'm in this little music, uh, I, I, you know, I am the very model of a modern major general of information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England and equate the facts historical from Mount Malone and Waterloo in order categorical. So, you, and it was a, a Gilbert and Sullivan, which I loved. My school were doing it, but they hadn't asked me to be in it. 
my school would do in a light opera. And me, the, who thought I was a singer, I wasn't, didn't even give me a part in it. There's all those sort of, day, the, the born. <laughs> so I, I kind of was dropping out of school big time, but doing all the work and keeping ahead of everybody, you know, like the brave face thing. And um, I got I got a job on the local a TV station open, you know, national television, and they opened regional things in 1961 or something. And I was 13, and they were looking for actors to play 13-year-old or 11-year-old. I could play anything, and uh, any any boy job. And I started to get lots of work over there at Granada TV, and. Uh, you know, I'd see the Beatles coming in and I'd come in and it was like, oh, this is like show business is happening over here. And I got myself in this because there were really there was nobody else. There were no other kids in the union and there were, there were no other kid. I didn't have many speaking parts. And I got on a thing called Coronation Street, which was the biggest TV show in England. I mean, the number one show by far to live 25 million people on Thursday nights, maybe two nights a week. I can't remember. And uh, I got a job on there and it paid phenomenally well you know compared to selling programs at old trafford football ground you know it was hundreds of pounds and you know i had a recurring thing and i didn't say my hey sputter what time are we going to the and all the actors on it would help me out because i'd forget my lines when they just do it so professional they just took care of me all the time so i was making all this money so i, I had this theory that if we had much better equipment people would think we were more valuable do you know what i mean it's like what would it be like it'd be like me saying if i've got an eve saint laurent purse people will like me more but in this case it was a vox ac30 amplifier and a vox bass amp because that's what the beatles had and we wanted to even smoke the same cigarettes as the beatles so we were so busy working and we were really enthusiastic and it became our turn to get signed to a label. So we went for an audition. Somebody said, oh yeah, let's listen to what they got. And we went and we failed completely. And the, the record producer guy told us the, the weak parts of the group. And there, there you find yourself now in a room with people that have put their heart and soul into a, an operation, you know what I mean? That, like their, their very soul is involved in this thing. They, they, everybody thinks they were the founder of a band you know that everybody think everybody who's ever in a band thinks they found it they're the founder <laughs> well you know these these two guys were in the original it was and and we had to get rid of them we had to because they weren't good enough they were great live and everything but the re recording studio was so we went had to break the band all up and settle down and we put Carl Green went onto the bass from the lead guitar and Keith Hopwood went onto and we shuffled everybody around and we found Derek Leckenby and Barry Whitworth in another band so they were kind of already used to getting in a van and schlepping around England so we put ourselves together in like April and then by June we went back in the studio and we met July maybe July, we made this record called I'm Into Something Good, and they put it out on August the 7th. This is all April, May, June, July, August the 7th. Exactly a year after we saw the Beatles in that field, we'd come from nothing to this position, which was like a, quite a shocker. We were always in the shadow of greatness. 
which is very good for, it's very good for people's, um, it's not good for confidence, but it's very good to keep your feet on the ground when you know, well, you know, the Beatles did this and this and they wrote all the songs. And you know what? On top of that, they're always nice to everybody. They're funny. They're pleasant. They're always charming. They're always dressed up. They're always right. And they're cool. You know, they're, and they're nice to us. So we better watch out for this. Let's keep a level playing field here. We know that there's that and there's Elvis and there's Little Richard and all these people, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame people. But we're down here on the third shelf. And let's stay here with our, you know, the, the processed peas and the Heinz beans. We'll be here and we'll leave the caviar and the champagne up there with Sam Cooke and Little Richard and Elvis Presley and the Beatles and maybe the Stones and Ultimate, but maybe Led Zeppelin. We'll let a few of those people on the top shelf. But, you know, people will decide they shouldn't be in here. So we won't go there at all. We'll stay here on the third shelf, you know, where people can reach in and grab one. But I now we were making records quickly. You know, we had to make records quickly because there was demand and we get more records. So Vicky calls me. I'd moved to London. My band lived in Manchester. My band, the Hermits, lived in Manchester. And um, he called me and says, you know, Sam Cooke got murdered in Los Angeles. Oh, no, because we're big fans of Sam Cooke. He said, come in, come into the studio. We'll do Eric Burden's here. We're going to do a tribute to, uh, to Sam Cooke and put it out tomorrow. So I said, whoa. So I'd come over and I said, I can't do Cupid. He goes, well, you want to do Cupid? Well, because I can make that noise. You know, when he goes, Cupid, draw back. I can do that. I do it live on stage. He says, what are you talking about? He says, how about this? Listen to this. Don't know much about history. Don't know much about biology. Don't know much about science book. Who does that sound like? Get in there and sing it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I didn't know much about anything. And I go in and it's Jimmy Page is the guitar player. And he's like the leader of the session. And he's a session guy. And he's a really once again, a really nice, charming. There was loads of nice people around in, in the music business. And, um, and he says, you know, let's cut. We're going to cut the introduction in half because it's boring. So I was fine. You know, he goes, da, 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 don't know much about history. And I, and I say, oh, uh, okay. And I say, I don't like the key very much. And Mickey Mouse comes out and says, I like the key. I said, but, but, but I don't care if I've got to sing it. And he said, listen, if I can sing it in that key, the whole world will be able to sing along. Which <laughs> is a great line. That's you know, great. if it's in my That's key, great. I mean, I've got a, the regular voice of a normal person. So it is an absolute horrible key. And, and we did cut the intro, but the drummer never found out. The drummer was Bobby Graham, who was like just one of the greatest drummers of all time you know, on the Kinks and the Dave Clark Fires, Bobby Graham. So, you know, we're, we're, he's playing along and he doesn't know that we've cut the intro in half. And you can, but the record is out before we realise, oh, he didn't catch up until the bridge. You know, he only realised, okay. Because we, we, we wanted to get, the, we, we thought, we thought at the time that music was like of the moment, we, we thought that, you know, the Beatles, when they didn't have overdubs and just double track the vocals, there's a massive amount of enthusiasm and energy that, that we thought we could, we thought we had that kind of energy. But when you listen to them now, there's mistakes and everything, but the, the, 
the whole Herman Hermits thing was a, a, of a moment. It, it's a moment in time, and we were in that moment. And now people go and look at look at that moment. They go, those guys look like they had a lot of fun. Do you know what I mean? Second verse, same as the first. All that stuff is just momentary madness, really. Most people would say, you can't do, you can't be in a music business with mistakes. So <laughs> we made mistakes and we, we laughed all the time. We never, the laughing stopped when we found out that somebody was, was not paying us. And we started to talk about money. We'd never talked about money. We'd always been like, I'd go to to get paid at the end of the evening and I'd share the money five ways. And it was just, it always been simple, you know, simple, like a, like a green grocer's shop, you know what I mean? And then suddenly we, we, we stopped getting, we used to get, we had a, we had a massive advance from, you know, MGM and all these people, millions. And then, you know, it was really, it was 75,000 pounds a month or something like that. And after three months of not getting the 75,000 pounds, we realized we were not, not going to get it. And we, we were all broke. It took us 40 years to get the money. By oh. then, the band was sort of gone, you know. Oh, um, I never realized that. It's it, it just, a, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because we, we recovered very quickly. We just didn't have that money. So we stopped making records for that American record company and had massive hits in the rest of the world. Like, you know, No Milk Today is the biggest selling record we ever had. And, you know, the Sunshine Girl and My Sentimental Friend, and uh, we had like 10 big number one hits that were never released in America, in the rest of the world. I did a, I did a, a record with David Bowie, he played the piano. We did a couple of the songs from Hunky Dory and they were big hits all over Europe. Not in America again, because there was something going on in America that we couldn't quite put our fingers on. I think the, the world was supposing that we were like the monkeys and, and it wasn't our turn. And after the monkeys would be the arches or David Cassidy or there'd be the, the... But we didn't know that we were teen idols. We thought we were alive. You know, we insisted on the Ed Sullivan show of playing live. And he thought, well, no, why do you want to play? Well, we, want, we want people to see how, we, how good we are. You know, because people were saying we weren't that good. I mean, we think we're really good. We think we're, we're good enough to be on the Ed Sullivan show. So let us play live. So that was all going on. And, you know, it, you see, we didn't think that, we, that the monkeys were competition. We thought, well, that's not like us. But the audience go, oh, it's got a cute English guy in it. It's like Herman's Hermit. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So, so we didn't see any of that coming. So we, luckily we recovered and, and that some of the best performances are after that thing. We did a performance for the, the Queen Mother, the Royal Command performance for the Queen Mother, who was idolized in England. She was, um, she was idolized by everybody. Everybody's grandmother and everybody's little sister thought she was the bee's niece. And um, so we got to play for her and we, we thought it was live. You know, they used to say live television. You didn't know that they recorded those things. We didn't know, but 50 years after it happened or 49 years after it happened, somebody shows me a tape of it. And I look at it, I go, we were bloody fantastic. We were fantastic. Not the hermits danced. They'd never danced. They did, we did a medley of show tunes you know, like Fiddler on the Roof and Mame and they were dancing and 
we did the, my uncle and we's got a shop down the high street we we did all these sort of show tunes and they were brilliant so i called i called carl green who was in, in the original band i said carl have you seen the royal command performance no it was live well there's a tape going around and I, i'm going to send you i said but, but before i send you the tape i want to ask you when you did the show when you went home that night did anyone say I didn't know you guys were capable of such great work. Like, no. I said, didn't your mum say anything? No, my, all my mum said was, how come you didn't meet the Queen and only Peter Noon got to meet him? And I had to explain, well, you only, she only meets one person from every... Well, she met all the Beatles, you know what I mean? <laughs> so that was the only conversation. So I said, well, let me be the first to tell you, you were brilliant. You didn't make a single mistake. And it wasn't your home turf you know in front of a live audience the queen mother and uh, and princess margaret and you know i mean big big shots in the audience and we we sailed through it nobody told us we were great no management no managers afterwards said oh well done lads Phew, that's really a game changer we didn't know you could do that kind of work i mean we'd rehearsed every day in a in a like a a dance classroom, you know, one of those things that we're not used to with a floor that kind of, we were used to making loads of noise and having a laugh and smoking and drinking tea and beer and, you know, jumping around on a mattress. And here we were like rehearsing like showbiz people. There's no bit that I show and all that stuff. So, so the best work was done after all that great work, you know, of the recording. And our audience was growing up as well. So it, was, it sort of made sense. We were playing cabaret rooms and the talk of yeah. the North, the talk of London and all those things. So we, we slowly broke up. We didn't, we didn't ever quit. People say, oh, they broke up. They quit. We didn't. We just said, let's give this a break for all. Let's do all do the things that we want to do for a bit because you're not going to stay. You know, you want to do this. You want to do that. And we thought we would wait until there was a magical opportunity. And, Amazingly enough, it came like in 1973, some guy, Richard Nader, offers an oldies tour, British Invasion with Jerry and the Pacemakers. It's going to be Herman Summits, Jerry and the Pacemakers, The Searchers, Wayne Fontana and Mind Meadows, Billy J. We can't say no to that. We're going to do it. And we did it. And it was not, it was too soon for an oldies tour. We were not, we were too young to, you know, I think I was 23 and I was on this oldies tour, oldies, you know, I thought, well, this is not good. So we, again, we folded. And I went and found, I got a TV series in England with, uh, you know, a weekly TV series. And I became Peter Noon. You know, <laughs> I was this Herman thing and Peter Noon. And over the last, 40, <coughs> thank you, over the last 40 years, I've managed to meld the two. Meld, you know, the two things have become the same thing. You know, I go, Herman, so starring Peter Noon. Some people seen Peter Noon in a movie or in, on Broadway, and some people have bought Mrs. Brown who got a lovely daughter. Oh, really? I never realized you were almost done when I started liking you. I was young. I loved you. Love, love, love. Of course, I love the Beatles, but you guys were it for me. Still love all the songs. I, I say with, with great amount of pride, we never recorded a song we didn't like. We were thrown in the deep end as well, remember, because it would have been better if we'd had another year because we were too young and, and we, did, we didn't take advantage of anybody, which I'm very proud of. We never hurt anybody's, you know, we, it was, it's an interesting thing that you could say, well, if they don't say, you know, my, my dad said, you know, one of the best things to have written on your gravestone is he was a nice bloke. 
you know, the Beatles, they maybe didn't like my records, but they liked me in Andrew Oldham. Andrew Oldham was the Stones manager and he also was involved in our public relations. We, we took care of us and the Stones at the same time. And he said, when the Beatles were looking at the shoulder for who's coming, it wasn't the Rolling Stones. Uh -huh. Yep. <laughs> in 1955 there, the, the label put out 11 singles. They all got in the top 20. And we sold more records than anybody in the world, including the Beatles and Elvis Presley. But we knew that that was just like, who's number one this week? You know, who's number one this week? You know, it's, it's ridiculous, really, isn't it? But we took the award, put it in a box. You know, it doesn't really mean anything. A gold record doesn't mean it. The next gold record means a lot. Did you guys get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yet? We're not in that. We're never going there. What the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame means to me is they should have a shelf system. <laughs> the top shelf guys. And we'll be on shelf number seven. I'll be fine down there. I don't really care which shelf I'm on. <laughs> but they won't do that, you see. They can't do that because it's not run like that. It's like they've got to get the latest flavor of the month. Yeah, right. To try and draw a, a crowd. It's not really about the history of rock and roll. The history of rock and roll will show that Ehrman's Hermits sold a lot of records in a time when the competition was amazing. Think about the competition we had. Dave Clark Five, the Zombies, the Searchers, the... You know, we sold more records than they cumulatively sold. There's a yep. lot of people that should be in the army. Oh, so yep. they get all the people that have to be in there because then they can start thinking about, oh, let's put the monkeys in there. <laughs> what is it? Weren't they rock and roll? Well, they didn't play in the rock. No, they did half the people in there. The people you put in this year didn't even have a musician on the. They had boots that they got off a computer. Uh, Come on. You know what happened? Once the music business gets taken over by old people, it always fails because old people want to be paid for it. And, and the music business only works when you want to make a record. If the Beatles had had the discussion about publishing before they wrote a song, they would never have written a song. That's it. So that's the same with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If, we, if you think we started out trying to get in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, what a joke that would be. I can list 900 people who should be in it we, before we get to Herman's Hermits and the Monkeys, we got Ricky Nelson, we got we got James Burton. <laughs> they said to James Burton, "We want to put you in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame." Between you know, because you played with Elvis, he said, "Well, can I can you can you sort of put next to can you put me next to Ricky Nelson?" He said, "Well, he's not in the Rock and Roll Hall. I'm his guitar player. You've not put him in. You can't put you can't put me in without him." <laughs> so Funny, you know, it's, so they don't know what they did. So old people, it's old people. You know, I the, the music, I'm going to do my rant. Music <laughs> when I was a kid was free. Everything was free. If you could afford to buy the record, you bought it. It was on the radio. They didn't charge you to listen to it on the radio. You went in a cafe and you had a coffee and somebody else played it on the jukebox. And they didn't walk around the cafe saying, hey, I just paid 25p to play a record. That's 1p each for everybody in the room to listen to it. No, they played it. And the pleasure they gave us the pleasure because while they were hearing it and paying for it, everybody else said, oh, he's cool. He played D on The Wanderer. So you know what? That was free. Everything was free and bands were cheap and everybody, everything was going along. And suddenly people said, this is a great way for making money, you know. Uh, uh, 
It's bigger than the drug business. You know what I mean? It's just mm -hmm. amazing that they ruined it and made everything to be paid for. And so nobody gets a start. You, you tell me where we can go tonight in probably in New York, maybe, but tell me where to go and, and see the new Nirvana. Hmm. Where's that going to happen? Mm -hmm. Where we're going to see the Sex Pistols? Not mm -hmm. going to happen. They can't even get a band together now. They all want 900 pounds a week uh, to settle down. Oh, I, I, need to, I need to pay my mortgage. <laughs> it's all gone. They, won't, they wouldn't get in a van for nine hours. They wouldn't do it. No. I remember Carl Green, when we used to drive across England, you know, we'd be recording in the studio at 6 a.m. in the morning and drive overnight from a gig. And he used to sleep on the top of the amplifiers in the van. And when we got on the bus with little Anthony, he got in the luggage rack to sleep. Some people can sleep anywhere. He would get in the luggage rack on a Greyhound bus and manage to sleep there. Remember, we were all 100 pounds. <laughs> Every English man got off the plane, 100 pounds. The suitcases were heavier than they were. <laughs> and you said you perform a Johnny Cash song. Which one? I do. I do. I walk the line and I've started to do Ring of Fire because people sing along with it. Mm. I fell into a burning ring of fire. They love it. <laughs> well, your voice is still good. Sounds great. Yeah, I, I, I take care of it. You know, what I did learn at the Manchester School of Music used, was, has been useful. And, you know, and, and I did Pirates of Penzance on Broadway. And there was this great lady called Marge Rivington, who got, me and Belushi were in it. And she made him, he could sing and smoke at the same time until he... <laughs> You know, she fixed us up good. She, it was like a, you know, because we, we're rock and roll people. We don't listen. We just spout all the time. So, and she said, look, you've got to learn how to warm up. I don't need to warm up. You know, it's my song. Okay, let's look. What have you got? And she said, listen, if you were a baseball player, a pitcher for the LA Dodgers, would you walk out there and start off by throwing your fastball? <laughs> well, no. So what would he do? He'd probably warm up, do it through his throat, get faster and faster and faster. All right, let's do that with your gob. Let's do that with your throat. Me, me, ma, mo, mo. And now I do it 45 minutes a day. Even if I'm not doing a concert, I do it because it's like, you know, if this is my operating system, I can't get a re... I can't reformat it. I've got to keep it going as long as I can. So I, I've been saying... I say to my agent every time I, I hang up the phone, 10 more years... Whatever day it is, tomorrow when he calls now, I'll say 10 more years. And he goes, oh, I'm in. If, you, <laughs> if, I, if I can keep going for another 10 more years, that would be really, really, 10 more years from today, it'd be really, really rewarding. You know, because look, Mick has done it. Mick yeah. Jagger's done it. And he sings better now than he did when he was 19. Yeah. Nobody will question that. And he, he's had a couple of little health issues, but who wouldn't? Yeah. You know, life is bittersweet you know stuff stuff happens to you when you get old and um not that he's that old but you know he's much older than me and i look at him and i go he's an inspiration to me because i said he's still have you seen him run around that stage for it's disgusting since this is life minute what are some life lessons you can share with us i think that it's important to always be fresh with it and and not let whatever's going on in reality change your your focus really you know I, I i was looking i looked at the news this morning i try not to see the news because 
you know, I prefer to read it. You know, I prefer to read it and all those different places where you can read it and just decide what you want to believe. And, and then always afterwards, I remember that Mickey Most used to say, um, the record that we make, they need to be the, the record that they play right after the news. Why? Why, Mickey? Why, why right after the news? He said, well, because more people, first of all, more people would be listening because everybody in those days, you would do news and then they would play music right afterwards. He said, first, and what you want is a song that makes people forget. Boom. Pound at all time, new low. Boom. Beatles. Not, you know, and whatever. It was all bad news. And then you go, woke up this morning, feeling, and everyone would forget that and move on. And, you know, the only thing I care about, the only thing I care about in the, in the world right now is what, who is going to take care of all those people who can't take care of themselves. And now, and now we've got a war going where nobody, nobody knows what, what is going to happen. So you're going to need somebody like in every war. They've had a song that everybody sang along. You know, it, it was in England. It was any old iron in the first, any old iron, any old iron, any 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 old iron. Because the government were going around picking your railings and your gate, anything that was made out of iron, and making bombs and weapons with it. And people were, oh, yeah, and they had a song about it. You know, and uh, it's there's always a, and and uh, and Vera Lynn in the Second War. There'll be bluebirds over the white cliffs of Dover, and people used to cry because their husbands and their children were... Remember, there was no news then. It wasn't live on TV, your son getting blown up. It was, you found out three weeks later. And, and I got a little story about that. This bloke here, I have his picture here, because he's my grandfather, Joseph Blair, his name is. Oh. And he was the lone survivor, lone survivor of the Manchester Regiment. And he was taken a prisoner of war in Iraq in 1920. And everybody you tell that story said, what were the British doing in Iraq in 1920? The same as they always do. Mining somebody else's business, right? <laughs> always. And he was a prisoner of war and he survived. And, you know, they didn't know that he'd survived until he came home one day. You know, he, there was no information. People didn't. You heard on the news that what, you, what my grandmother heard was that the... the Manchester regiment completely annihilated, gone, are all gone. So she took it for granted. Then she got a letter from him that he was a, in a prisoner of war in Iraq, but she didn't tell anybody because she needed the widow's pension to feed her children. But she was the only one who knew he was alive when he walked in the door. He's alive. Oh my God. You know? yeah. so it probably took four weeks to get back from there. Yeah. No way to communicate, you know. Amazing. When, when, I was, when I first got married, just before I got married, I, we lived on an island, Ibiza, in Spain. Mm. And um, there were no phones. There was a phone at the hotel that you could walk and you could ask them, could you use it? But you had to pick up the phone and a woman would answer in Spanish. And you'd have to say, I want to call Baton Rouge, Louisiana, you know, or whatever. It was like very difficult to make phone calls. But they had telegrams. And we still got all those telegrams that my wife and I sent to each other during our, you know, I'd go on tour in America and the only way I could communicate with my friends getting married and then I love you and all in French. My French was pathetic as well. I had English schoolboy French, you know, English schoolboy French, French 
teaches you how to ask where is the toilet, but not to know what they're saying when you want to. How long have you been married? Uh, 55 years. Wow, congratulations. Beautiful. A good sense of humor. Is that the key, a good sense of humor? You need a good sense of humor to live with me. I've often said this everybody's allowed their own idiosyncrasies you're allowed to have a few idiosyncrasies and whatever it is I'll accept it (laughs) I'm just worried about all those homeless people around here you know the problem I've found with the big charities that as a lot of people get paid yeah. And when I do charity, I make sure no one else gets paid. You know, we did a thing here for alcohol and drugs, and, and, it, and I got amazing people to work for nothing. And I said, look, I'm working for nothing. Everybody who's in this show, we're going to call it the British Invasion. We're going to have Eric Burden, and we're going to have Alan Parsons, and you're going to have Herman Summit. So we'll do a show. We'll get the equipment given to us by a local equipment person. We'll get all the food. Everything will be free. Nobody's going to get paid. Well, they made a lot of money. They made a lot of money because it was a good idea and yeah. nobody got paid. No hotel rooms, none of that. Yeah. People can come and they can pay and they can, and the people who normally would have been given the 2,500 to pay to take care of the hotel rooms and the airplane fares and all that, they wrote that check to the charity. So we, we, we got, we're going to fix it somehow, but I, I, I like the fact that people like Michael DeBar and, and I do a thing in, I have a, a Facebook stars thing. And last week we, we got, a, you know, every now and then we raise a thousand bucks for the Salvation Army, $891. I think oh, it was because, that's great. Because 891 gets so many foods. And, and this week, Davy Jones, who is like another Mancunian like me, he has these horses that he, he was trying to keep the herd together and they cost a fortune horses. All they do is eat and poop, you know. And, and, he had these horses and he was taking care of them and then he died and now his children have to take care of these horses. So we, we've raised, I can't remember, we've raised about a thousand bucks this week for that. And we, every week we go and, you know, my fans are happy to, you know, let's, let's help all these people out. Eventually, somebody's going to come up with some system that gets hopeless people, you know, I don't know. You know, we don't want to end up like Haitians, do you know what I mean, who are just asking for help from 100% of their lives. Help us, help us, help us. We don't want that to be in America. We've got to help it. I think it's going to be a time where people, especially all the stuff that's going on in, in you, what used to be called Europe, you know, that thing going on there. You know, I think people are going to have to start taking care of each other. Like, like in my grandmother's time where people knew what everybody was doing and the kids were safe on the street because if there was, any, if there was a kiddie messer around, my grandmother would go and set fire yeah. to his house. Maybe that's yeah. why people were Yes, we need her. We need your grandma. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, there must be loads of people like that who would like to take care of it and not, not you know, just be wise about each other. That's all I think. You know, just be aware that uh, there's some people aren't, you know, don't work for Google and make $500,000. Some people are just normal people and they're, they're just making every day melt into the next day and grow up their children. And I became a grandfather finally, a couple of, about two, six weeks ago. Oh, that's so nice. Congratulations. American grandson I've got with three passports, oh. a French American and British passport. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, you yeah, have so they, uh, a lot of good uh, experience from your grandma on how to do it. Yeah. So, like, you know how to be a good grandpa. <laughs> yeah, well. but I'm, I wouldn't be good at beating people up like she was. <laughs> <laughs> so, Peter, what's next for you? Next is I've got 100 concerts and each one of them is different. And uh, we, we, I say to my group who travel with me that, you know, it could be the same place. The second show, they won't be the same. They'll be completely different. We, everyone is going to be totally unique. And, and you hope that one day you can look back and remember them with some pride. You know, oh, that was a, I remember that night. That was a really good night. The audience was really good. You know, you can never, the band is always average. But the audience is better yeah. and they they rise us to their level they raise the bar so that we have to try a little bit harder oh peter it's been an honor and a pleasure to speak with you now when i listen to your songs that will be even more special to me i love talking about me <laughs> well you do a great job at it to see more of this interview visit our website lifeminute.tv and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast life minute tv